Well, today I'm speaking with Ian Bremmer. And it's important to know that we recorded this interview before Trump's recent meeting with Putin. We talk about Trump a little bit here. Not much would change about the conversation, but it's just good to understand why we are apparently oblivious to the recent news from Helsinki. News that seems, to my eye at least, to be every bit as alarming as the alarmists say it is, though unsurprising. It is, of course, no surprise that Trump is sufficiently incompetent and so easily manipulated by his own narcissism and self-interest that he could glad-hand a tyrant who kills and jails journalists and his own political opponents and take his side in a controversy that is, in fact, no controversy against the unanimous understanding of the intelligence communities of the United States. And we should note that serious people are using the word treason to describe this. I don't think Ian Bremmer, today's guest, would be one of them. He would be slow to make that accusation. But it'll be very interesting to see if this is yet another thermonuclear scandal that Trump manages to weather, or if it actually matters in the end. It really does seem that for 40% of the American population, nothing he can do or say matters. There's no level of incoherency, no level of conflict of interest, no ethical impropriety, nothing that can matter. It's amazing. Anyway, I won't belabor the point. Ian Bremmer is the president and founder of the Eurasia Group, the leading global political risk research and consulting firm. He has published 10 books, including Superpower, The End of the Free Market, and Every Nation for Itself. He lectures widely and writes a weekly foreign affairs column for Time magazine, where he's the editor-at-large. And most recently, he's the author of the new book, Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism. And that's what we talk about today. We talk about globalism and all of its problems, the attendant rise of populism, issues like immigration and trade. All of these things are all too relevant to our current circumstance. So without further ado, I bring you Ian Bremmer. I'm here with Ian Bremmer. Ian, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but I recall meeting you only once. I think we met in the green room of some show. I don't know if it was a CNN show or something else. Do you have any recollection of this? This is like probably 12 years ago. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I know you so much better um, from, you know, End of Faith and, uh, and, and various speeches and such that you've given. So I if we met in a green room, it was so much uh, less significant than right. that yeah. that uh, it is completely lost from my memory. Uh, well, I've appreciated you from afar as well, so it's great to finally meet you virtually and uh, for good reason, because you have a new book, which I'm eager to talk about. The book is Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism. This could not be more timely, but uh, before we jump into the book, give me your potted biography. Well, how do you describe what it is you do? Uh, I'm a political scientist, uh, and I think of myself that way. Um, I was trained uh, out in the West Coast at Stanford. Originally, I was kind of a post-Sovietologist. I started working on things former Soviet as that uh, country slash empire was in the process of falling apart and speak Russian and lived out there for a few years. 
uh, when I finished my PhD, I, I was an academic for a couple of years and then basically started a company because um, there was apparently no company for political scientists. And I really wanted to still be a political scientist. So I've done that for about 20 years now. And we have a couple hundred folks and we all look at how politics affect the markets uh, all over the world. You've written this book, which doesn't give too many causes for optimism, at least in the near term. Let me see if I can summarize your worries here. You have this argument that those of us who have benefited from globalization and are now worried about the rise of populism everywhere need to be very careful not to discount the concerns of the people who have voted in the populace, and in our case, who have voted for Trump. And you're making a very detailed case for the legitimacy of certain concerns about trade and immigration and this general way in which the support for cosmopolitanism and the celebration of cultural diversity and the free exchange of goods and ideas that seems universally subscribed among wealthy and educated people at this moment is leading to a breakdown of trust and an erosion of social capital among people who are less well-off. And so people like ourselves mock the populace at our peril because there really is something that has to be understood here, and business as usual is not going to serve us well. Is that a fair summary of where your head is at at the moment? Absolutely, Sam. And I mean, you know, you would think by... Uh, I mean, if you just came down from uh, from another planet um, and uh, and showed up in the United States right now, you, you you would certainly think you turn on the media, you'd think the reason why we have all these problems is because of this crazy person called Donald J. Trump, and um, and that's just not true, right? I mean, fundamentally, first of all, it's something that's much broader than just the United States, so you can't look at the solutions as only being limited to the American president, and and much more important than Trump being elected is how you got to a place where more people didn't bother to vote than voted for Hillary, or that so many would have voted for someone who so clearly um, was uh, incapable uh, in so many ways of actually leading the country. And, uh, and absolutely, I believe that uh, there are just way too many people that don't believe that there is complicity on the part of the globalists over the part of the past decades, myself very much included, in being, uh, in being responsible for this problem. Well, let's define a few terms here because I've used several, which I think most people have a vague sense of, but I think very few will have a precise definition for in their heads. How would you differentiate, for instance, globalism versus globalization? What do those two terms mean? So when I talk about globalists, I'm talking about the Jews. Right. I'm <laughs> kidding, actually. I'm, I'm really not doing that. It's funny how um, in uh, th that there have been some in the alt-right uh, that have tried to, uh, to take that term and make it nefarious. Actually, when I talk about globalism, I'm talking about a philosophy, um, an ideology that's been promoted by elites, leaders in the West. So public intellectuals, political leaders, corporate leaders, business leaders, media leaders that free trade, open borders, and global security provided by the U.S. and our allies would, was the way to go, and, and further would be the best for all of our citizens. That's globalism. It's really a political ideology, where globalization is something I'm a huge fan of. That's an economic process 
that shows that bringing goods and services and ideas all over the world is going to create more global wealth and make our lives better. And and certainly, um, you know, if you look at today's planet and the fact that we have, um, you know, one global middle class as opposed to a few really rich people and a lot of crushingly poor people, that's been a fantastic change. And most of the world is literate today. And most of the world lives over 70 years of age. And 90% of one-year-olds get a get an immunization. And I mean, you know, the world is more free of suffering today than at any point in history. And I know you, you've talked to Steve Pinker in the past recently and others that are that tell that story much more refreshingly uh, than I certainly would. Um, but I, I'm sadly a political scientist. I'm, I'm, I'm not, um, you know, focused um, on, on the global economic trends or demographic trends. And from the political science perspective, the advanced industrial democracies, the liberal democracies that have benefited from promoting globalism in their borders have really failed a lot of their citizens. Um, and we see a lot of structural inequality that's only growing as a consequence of that. And a lot of people that feel very displaced and they either completely check out of the political system um, or they vote to break things. And, uh, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. In fact, it's getting worse. Mm. I got maybe two more terms here. So I, I used a term, I believe, that's pretty close in meaning to globalism, but doesn't have the same negative connotation, at least in, in many people's minds, and that's cosmopolitanism. And I don't know if you would see much daylight between those two concepts, but for me, cosmopolitanism is this sense that humanity is a single community in principle, at least if not always in practice, and that we can have a reasonable expectation that we will all converge on the same moral and political norms if given enough time, and that therefore differences in background, you know, it's just the sheer accidents of birth, don't ultimately matter. And there's this phrase that sounds that it might be of, of, of recent coinage, but actually it goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks, this notion of being a citizen of the world. And this is a, an attitude that many of us have adopted because we do view ourselves as citizens of the world. Our interests are not so narrowly anchored within our own political national borders. And as you point out, the success of so many things, you know, a reduction in violence, a reduction in war, reduction in illiteracy, or a reduction in basic health epidemics, the spread of infectious disease, these are tides that can, at least in principle, lift all boats. And yet, this is seems to be put in peril now by the rise of a another term we've used here, populism. How would you define populism? Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, as the opposite of um, cosmopolitanism. I mean, populism—the idea that you know your people um, are the ones that need to be promoted—and it's you know X first. It does America first, whites first. Uh, blacks first, I mean, you name it, uh, but it's, it's a reduction of humanity to much smaller uh, constituent and usually identity politics pieces. I, I like the way you, you just talked about cosmopolitanism. It reminded me of something. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm 48 years old, so I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and I remember that when I was in high school and college, people used to always ask me my astrological sign. Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't know about you, Sam. What are you, Sam? Uh, I'm an Aries, but 
Aries don't believe in astrology. Yeah, well, that's okay. Uh, you don't need. I mean, I, I yeah, from, from from the end of faith perspective, I, I'm 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 not surprised. But um, you know, I I I'm a Scorpio, and I I liked being a Scorpio, and I, my mom used to read um, you know, sort of the uh, the horoscopes. And what I liked about being a Scorpio, aside from the fact there were cool things you could read into Scorpio ness, you know, serious loyalty, a little bit secretive, you know, I mean that kind of thing, is also that you know everyone had a shot at one of these 12 things. And the fact that, so you're gonna be different from your family members and your Venn diagram could overlap with absolutely everyone. Doesn't matter your class, doesn't matter your gender, your white or black, what country you're from, everyone gets a shot at a cool horoscope sign, right? So it's kind of, it's a good ideology for cosmopolitans, right? Um, it's, uh, there's a lot of Venn diagram intersection and overlappingness. You look at the world today, and um, people think of themselves much more as Americans or other. Nobody asks about astrological sign anymore, uh, but if we get on social media, we've got algorithms and technology that are doing their damnedest to sort us. Um, and, and, and I think that that really undermines civic nationalism. And it really promotes us versus them ideologies. We only watch things that we like because we are the product um, that's being sold um, to ensure maximization of advertising revenue. That's an incredibly dysfunctional thing. I'll give you one more stupid example, Sam, but since I'm in the, in the mindset for it, on Monday, I, I went to jury duty. And... Uh, you know, we do jury duty every six years. I kind of like it um, because it's one of these things in America that brings everyone together. And Lord knows in New York, that's even more true. So last time I was there six years ago, had my jury duty and you all listen to the watch the 10 minute orientation video. And by the way, same orientation video that I saw this Monday. So no change. And then after that, six years ago, some people watching the paper, reading the paper. Some people are, you know, sort of reading a book. Um, you had a couple people go outside for a smoke, but over the course of the day, you talked to each other, you met the people. And there were a couple people I actually stayed in touch with just from jury duty six years ago. I remember this 55 year old woman that taught in a local community college who we ended up uh, being in touch with each other and her kid wanted to be a political scientist. It was kind of cool. This Monday, we finished the same orientation video. And right after the video was over, I would say with one or two exceptions in the entire room of two to 300, every single person was either on their phone or on their computer. No one was worried about how much time they were wasting. They were all engaged in their own world, engaged with people that were much more like them than the people in the room. And no one talked to each other at all, except maybe borrowing a pen. There was no civic nationalism. It was all reverting um, to much more like for like. We went behind our walls. And I think that of all of the trends that are stimulating us versus them style populism, the backlash to free trade and open borders and globalization and the fact that the working class isn't doing as well as they used to in the, in the West, the backlash to open borders and different people coming in and changing our demographics, the backlash to um, U.S. and its allies fighting in failed wars and sending, um, you know, poor enlisted men and women off to battle and coming back in pieces and not being treated very well. Of all of those things, which have been coming for decades, 
the one that is by far the most debilitating in my view and that I'm the most negative about are these technological transformations that we've seen just in the last five years. Yeah, well, this is something that I've thought more and more about just the effect of social media on myself personally and, and on society at large. I notice you have, I think, 32,000 tweets to your name. So you are implicated in this problem. I would say you might have a problem if you sent that many tweets. What do you think about the effect of social media here? And are we in danger of exaggerating the problem of political polarization? I mean, it certainly seems like we're in a very new place speaking domestically at the moment with the rise of Trump and the fact that the two sides of the political spectrum seemingly cannot have a, a civil conversation about facts anymore. Is this an illusion of much deeper fragmentation in our society, or is it in fact real? I think it's becoming much more real much more quickly. Um, I think that the fake news and disinformation problem is one that is facilitated in part by a media space that has fragmented away from three big networks where the personalities were different, but the news that you consumed was the same, to one where now the news that you consume if you support Trump or if you oppose Trump is actually completely different. And, you know, I usually I try to run outside if the weather's nice, but if it's not, I'll be on the treadmill. And I try to watch a little Fox and a little CNN or MSNBC in the morning when I'm doing it. And it's obvious that the headlines are different planets and, uh, and, and, and have very little to do with each other. And the ability uh, as a consequence to really change the narrative, I mean, you know, getting Trump supporters over the course of literally just a year to go from law and order, we love the FBI and the Department of Justice, to uh, these guys are complicit and they're in the tank for the Democrats and we want to undermine them. And that's a dramatic ideological change that's facilitated by um, getting the same news from a filter bubble all the time and only listening to people that agree with that and push you in a more extreme direction. And if you combine that with, you know, our own neuroplasticity, uh, the fact that, you know, sort of our brains rewire pretty damn quickly in response um, to changed environments, whether it's losing sight or losing a hand, or um, whether it's starting to, you know, sort of uh, develop sympathies for um, our kidnapper or our hijacker. Uh, I mean, our brains have effectively been hijacked by a, a much narrower slice of political understanding, fealty, and community, and we are adapting to that. And our kids are adapting much more quickly because, of course, they're growing up with nothing but 24-7 online. And once that moves towards augmented reality, um, I, I really do fear uh, that it's going to be much harder uh, for us to be cosmopolitans ever again. Yeah, some of the changes in ideology on the right post-Trump have been fairly bewildering. I mean, the fact that Putin is a celebrated figure among Republicans now, this is the party that imagines it won the Cold War, uh, you know, and to some degree validly imagines it won the Cold War. This is the party that you would expect would be the, the last to lose sight of the problem with someone like Vladimir Putin. And yet it seems like he has a better reputation among Republicans now than certainly any Democrat. There's one fact you cite in your book that's just 
straight up terrifying. The fact that there's a Washington Post poll that found that a majority of Republican voters, a majority, said they would favor postponing the 2020 election if Trump suggested it. One can only hope this is one of those poll questions where many people just didn't understand the implications of, of the box they were checking. But I mean, that's just patently insane to think that a majority of, of Republicans would favor that. Yeah, um, I, I hope you're right. Um, but I also feel that a lot of people uh, believe that democracy isn't a good system because they don't think we live in a democracy. They think the system pretends to be a democracy and it's rigged. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's in reality a Potemkin democracy where you get uh, fundamentally different types of policing or jurisprudence and lawyering um, or educational opportunities and all the rest um, if uh, you're from a privileged class. And that's not the America that we were um, brought up to believe in. Uh, but I do think that's a concern. And, you know, my mother's not with us anymore. But if she were, and I say this in the opening of the book, she would have voted for Trump. My brother did. Uh, and that's because they fundamentally believe that the system is rigged against uh, poor folks that don't matter. And, and as much as I consider myself a cosmopolitan uh, strongly, I mean, you know, I, only by accident of history do I happen to be an American or was I raised Catholic? And if I was raised Buddhist or if I was Japanese, would that make me think that, you know, the American system was still better than the other ones? Probably not. Right. So, I mean, I, I have a hard time being less than ecumenical about these things personally. And yet I'm really sympathetic to people that want to blow up the system. I'm really sympathetic to the anger of people that look at the role of money in American elections and look at the failure of the American dream for so many Americans and say, you know what, this system isn't working. So if you give me something else, irrespective of what it was, I mean, Brexit was such an obviously stupid thing for the future of the UK. I mean, just on every count, it was obvious to anyone with any sense in their head that the only deal that would be made possible for the UK with the EU after leaving would be one that was worse for the UK than the status quo ante. Like that is on its face obvious. But if you are someone that feels like the system has been lying to you for decades and that no matter who you vote for, what you do, it's going to continue to find a way to screw you and benefit them, then voting for Brexit simply to make the establishment pay attention to you suddenly becomes a rational thing. Yeah. Let's talk about a few of the pieces here that are relevant. I guess immigration and open borders within the EU might, might be a good place to start. So, I mean, immigration is often described as something that has no downside for anyone. And to be worried about it or to want to limit it is synonymous with xenophobia or racism. Talk about that for a second and talk about the legitimate grievances one might have or the legitimate concerns one might have with unchecked immigration and the open border policy, specifically in the EU. Well, there are lots, right? And it really depends. It's very different from country to country, place to place. One would be the economic. There are certain places where you need migrants. Um, and in the United States, historically, we've had a lot of jobs that um, American citizens aren't willing to do for lack of uh, wages and lack of benefits. I mean, certainly agricultural work at the bottom end, when Reagan decided to really clamp down on the border, 
no Americans were going to do those jobs, prices of food, fruit and vegetables shot up. And very quietly, Reagan had to loosen up because people were complaining about the fact that they they went to the store and they were paying more. So, um, you know, that's that's certainly a plus. But in some countries and in some with some populations coming in, you don't have the work for them and they become a burden. I mean, you know, Germany, most of the Syrian refugees that came in did not have the skills to participate meaningfully in the German economy. So they were an economic burden on Germany. And that is, I think, a legitimate reason for people to be opposed to unlimited immigration. Let's just sharpen that up to cite a fact from your book. I think it's that the cost to Germany to integrate this recent wave of migrants is estimated to be 400 billion euros. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Now, to be fair, I mean, Germany has extraordinary uh, system of benefits that they provide to all their citizens and anyone coming in from Syria as a legal migrant would get the same benefits that a German citizen would. So it is particularly costly in Germany, but it, it would be very costly in lots of places. I mean, even if you're Turkey and you have three million migrants that are in refugee camps, the cost to the Turkish economy is very high. Jordan which takes on massive numbers of refugees from Iraq and from Syria, they've had to reduce their defense spending uh, because of all of the cost and refugees, and no one's willing to help them out with it. So the, the horrible thing, and what people in the United States frequently don't care about, don't realize, is that the countries that are, that are actually bearing the greatest burden from migration are countries like Uganda and Jordan and Turkey, and not the United States or Canada or Germany because it's the countries that are right on the border of these conflict zones that have no choice but to let everybody in. They certainly don't have the defensing and the borders that the United States actually does. Then you have the issues of direct security, um, the perception um, that is false in the United States, but true um, in much of Europe, um, that when immigrants come in, that they will, uh, per they will engage in more crime. Uh, than your local population. And, and certainly across Europe, you've seen new migrant populations from uh, Islamic countries posing threats to women, more petty crime going up. I mean, those sorts of things. So a direct security issue, even a terrorist issue, which we've seen, again, not in the United States, but definitely in Europe, where Muslim populations are much larger and don't integrate as well into local populations. So it's harder to police them. It's harder to uh, to get intelligence from the inside because they're not willing to talk in the way that historically, if you're in a Yemeni bodega in New York City, you'll, you'll work with the New York uh, police department and you'll actually rat out someone that you think is potentially, you know, sort of uh, indulging in radicalism. And, and then there's just the, the question of clannishness and the fact that, um, you know, if, if you live in Queens, as Trump and Trump's family did, which was the whitest borough in New York when he was a kid, and then over the course of just a couple generations, became the most diverse of any in the United States, frequently uh, that causes a great fear of outsiders. Very different than me growing up with Puerto Ricans uh, who lived in the projects with me. My mother knew those Puerto Ricans, and we were friends and neighbors all the way through, and so those were fine. But, you know, the new Vietnamese and Laotians who didn't speak English very well and they were outsiders, we didn't trust them. Right. So I think that there are all sorts of reasons why different populations would have difficulties with immigrant populations coming in. 
and uh, they they are different over time and and specific political and cultural circumstance, uh, but they all deserve being addressed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the concern for me is that the left seems capable of so relentlessly ignoring the valid concerns here and lying about them or otherwise obfuscating them, and then branding anyone who continues to worry in the face of that denialism as a racist or a bigot, that it seems poised to create this right-wing, white, populist backlash in its own right and totally fail to marshal a valid and effective political response to it. I mean, I, I see Trump getting reelected, irrespective of anything he does you know, while in office. If he simply avoids destroying our economy, he could get reelected simply because the left will play their hand so badly. And not just on immigration. Yeah, on everything, identity politics. I mean, I obviously agree with what you're saying on, on immigration, but I mean, I, I can just tell you that if I, if foreign policy is the area I know the best, right, because I cover the world. Um, and um, I would say that when Obama was president, I was probably negatively disposed towards Obama for policy about 60% of the time, positive about 40. With Trump, it's closer to 85 or 90% negative for reasons we can discuss if you want, not that important. But the point is that, God forbid I say anything positive about what Trump has to say. For example, just recently, NATO summit in um, you know, criticizing the German former chancellor uh, for wanting to, uh, for being in the pocket of the Russians and building a gas pipeline that would undermine the national security of East European allies. He's absolutely right on that. He's the first American president that's made it public. I make that point. You get absolutely savaged by people because there's no space for complexity. There's no space for nuance in these arguments. And I think that if the left plays that game along with Trump, that it gives Trump the best opportunity to be reelected. Well, we'll talk about that in a second. I, I want to talk a little bit more about the global picture here and all of these variables interact. Immigration and trade are related to this, the coming impact of automation and AI, which you write about in the book. And at one point you say that automation accounts for 88% of the lost manufacturing jobs in the U.S. between 2006 and 2013. There are various estimates of this, but most seem to agree that about half of all jobs in many cases or in specific countries, maybe as high as 70%, are susceptible to automation in the near term. And this rises to 70% in some fairly scary countries like India and Nigeria, where that have these massive youth bulges and high levels of wealth inequality already, and, and also high levels of religious sectarianism. And these are really not places where we would expect a sudden spike in unemployment to end well. How do you view the role of automation here? And how do you see the different levels of resiliency in the developed and developing worlds with respect to these changes? So there's no question that the speed and scope of automation in displacing employment is vastly greater than what we've seen from globalization over the last 50 years. And therefore, the ability of governments to respond to it is going to be more limited. Now, um, I, am, uh, I think the jury is out 
as to whether or not this new industrial revolution will end up leading to even more jobs or less. Uh, there are people that argue both sides of that. Uh, I've done a lot of work on the issue. It seems pretty clear that we don't know yet. What we do know is that the people that are committed to the idea that this is a fourth industrial revolution and everything's going to be fine are just talking their own book. They're promoting uh, a corporatist ideology that um, we should no longer want to believe than uh, Mark Zuckerberg saying that Facebook is going to be great for everyone and then finds out it isn't. It's like, who knew? Well, I mean, he wasn't incented to know because if he did any studying, it might have gone against, you know, sort of his entire corporate model. So they don't do that. Right. Um, and so I'm mistrustful. I would say I'm skeptical of this. And I realize that in the developed world, like if if we end up not needing 50 percent of our labor uh, in 20 years time, the country is not going to go into revolution. Right. I mean, people will still eat. We are not going to let our people starve. Um, you know, so the schools will still function. People will get a basic education. We're an incredible wealthy country. Um, we're free of war. Uh, there's no problems uh, in terms of arms race on our borders. We've got two big oceans and two, two very stable countries around us. Um, and we are the largest food producer in the world. We're about to be the largest energy producer. It's awesome to be America. But you know, uh, there are other countries out there that if you start really taking away the ability of the government to ensure a basic social contract, in other words, you're not going to have a job and the government's not going to do anything for you, you'll get Tunisia. You know, you're going to get a lot of people setting themselves on fire. You get a lot of people setting other things on fire. And I do worry that that level of displacement especially because the people that benefited from globalization over the last 40 years, this was jobs leaving the developed world and going to the developing world because labor was cheaper. Well, you know, in 2018, those jobs are more expensive. The labor rates have increased. And increasingly, you can automate them, not just in manufacturing, but also in service sectors. And, and so those jobs, many of them are going to go away. They might be replaced by something else, but the something else, you're going to need to educate the people to do them. And a lot of those people aren't the same people. And, and if they go away and they're not replaced, you have a big problem. Now, if you're China, because you control the economy and all the major corporations, you can continue to employ those people, even if they're really inefficient. You can just say, state-owned enterprises, you're going to keep employing those people. But if you're Mexico or Brazil or, you know, sort of even farther down the food chain, let's say uh, Nigeria, you know, sort of or Kenya, and those jobs go away, I'm not sure the government has anything for you. And so therefore, I think the biggest concern of the automation and AI revolution is not in the West, but it's in the emerging markets where the populations are much more vulnerable. The social contracts and safety nets are actually um, much less finely woven, and uh, the governments and the political institutions are far less resilient, they're far less stable. Just speaking of the possible solutions to this in the developed world, how enthusiastic are you for universal basic income? Is that a plausible remedy for you in the U.S. in particular? I think we don't know yet. Um, uh, I'm, I, so let me give you an analogy. I think where we are right now in structural inequality and us versus them is where we were 40 years ago with climate change. And I think that's why my book reads 
um, as a little bleak. Because if, if I were a climatologist 40 years ago, I would be probably saying, my God, the science is so obvious and it's clear this is like a really big global problem and no one is paying attention to it. So come on, guys, like let's pay attention to it. And if you asked what the solutions were, I might have a few pet theories, but I wouldn't know what the solutions were because no one was even addressing the problem, right? And, and we needed to spend some time to do some experiments to realize that like cold fusion probably didn't work, but solar power actually is promising. And 40 years later, it's cheaper than coal during the daytime, right? And that's, that's because we did a lot of experiments, put some money into some stuff, see what works, see what's scalable. You know, we haven't had the big breakthroughs on battery storage and, and uh, um, transmission uh, uh, yet. Uh, but over time, you know, that Bill Gates thinks that's a big one that'll actually work, right? Maybe there are others. So, you know, I think that right now, the only way we're going to deal with these issues of large percentages of our population just getting lost to cosmopolitanism seemingly forever is we're going to need to try a lot of experiments. And, um, and, and some of those experiments should involve universal basic income. Now, I will tell you that I personally fear that that's not the solution. And I say that because I think that if you just are saying, let's provide money, um, a lot of people in power will think that their obligation to society kind of ends there and you might create a more permanent underclass. So I'd much rather see support for more flexible outcomes like gig economies where everybody gets some support with better training that's universal training that follows them over their lifetime and improves and is on digital as well and better paternity leave and maternity leave and better early stage education and all of this kind of thing, but isn't full on UBI. But I, I don't pretend that we have the data. I mean, in order for me to say UBI does or doesn't work, we can't just have you know, Norway trying it for two years and then killing it because it costs too much money and, uh, and Stockton in California and a couple of towns in Canada and the Saudi model and say, well, that's good enough. You know, I mean, we, we need to actually test this with significant populations over a period of time and test some other things too. Yeah. So how do you think about and how should people, in your view, think about wealth inequality? Because Obviously, there's the expectation that there will always be some of it. And in fact, it's a sign that things are functioning appropriately if there's some level of wealth inequality because people add different measures of value to a free market and benefit accordingly. It seems the jury is no longer out on the economic and social alternatives to capitalism that have been tried. I think there's the sense that. A certain degree of inequality is just by definition politically and sociologically and psychologically toxic. How do you think about wealth inequality and when and where does it almost by definition need to be corrected for? It seems pretty clear to me that whatever the ideal level of wealth inequality is, there's too much of it right now. Both domestically and globally, and glo and globally, both domestically and globally, um, uh, and and I, I say that because it's pretty clear that large percentage of the population 
simply do not feel like they are getting opportunities. Um, and they're right. So, I mean, when you have um, healthcare that is as broken as it is in the United States right now, when you have infrastructure that's as broken as it is, um, when you have suicide rates that are increasing um, the way they are, um, you, you, you can't fix this. I mean, the school system that has deteriorated as much as it has in the, in, the, in the global rankings over the past 30, 40 years, you can only fix that by redistribution. And um, we need to do that. It's, it's not just enough to come in and say we need to reduce corruption and we need to tweak defense spending. I mean, this is going to be a redistributive policy, and that's okay. Um, most people I know that are really wealthy will say that they're willing to spend a lot more in taxes if they didn't think it was going to be wasted. Um, and part of the problem is that our political system has become so sclerotic and so controlled by special interests that we don't, we can't do big think anymore. I mean, there's just no more, there's no new, new deal possible. Um, there's no, there's no national infrastructure that we can get done, that we can actually get passed. So most of the solutions of redistribution are probably going to be done on the local level and the state level and on the philanthropic level rather than by the national government, not because I think that's better, but simply because I think the, the latter is not plausible. What is the fix for that? Because that, that is obviously a widely shared concern that more or less anything the government attempts to do, it will do badly. And therefore, everyone feels some serious misgivings about paying their fair share in taxes. Can you see a way of changing, insofar as it's reality, changing the reality, insofar as it's just a perception, changing the perception of government incompetence there? I think it is a reality. And I think there are two things that you can do. The first is um, go with the flow. In other words, if Washington is broken, then allow for double down on decentralization. I mean, if you're a big corporation and you know that you're spending money in Washington, it's just going to go down the drain, then don't put your government relations people in Washington. Put them in Austin. Put them in Sacramento. I mean, the Singaporean prime minister, who I know pretty well, um, you know, says he doesn't have such a great relationship with Trump, but he's never had better relations with key mayors and key governors in the United States. And that's where he's really building his relationships in the U.S. He's going to put a lot more investment there. That makes sense to me. So I, I don't think that our federal system is not something to be shunned. It's something that actually is a is a, a huge ad advantage in terms of resilience. You know, we, we got uh, legalized same-sex marriage in this country because the country's so decentralized. That, those were experiments that started at the state level. Um, we got the energy revolution, not because of Obama, but because of policies at the municipal and at the state level. Um, so a lot of the extraordinary things that America's managed to do, even with Washington that's really broken, still managed to get done because there are lots of you know, right-thinking people out there um, that are capable of finding ways to make things move. But what you really wanted is me to answer for Washington. and. I, I don't pretend to have any magic wand. All of the I have some obvious fixes that are completely impossible, like you know, um, election finance reform and uh, you know, universal uh, voting being mandatory uh, under penalty of fine, like you've got in Australia and Brazil. I mean, those things would fix fix it, uh, but but they're not possible. So why even talk about them? I think what's more interesting is can we start to create new institutions to deal with new problems. So in other words, like 
when we want to talk about the automation and AI, I wouldn't try to do that within the commerce department or USTR. I would do that with a new organization where hiring is done differently. Maybe it's more between the private sector and the public sector with uh, higher wage rates because otherwise you're never going to get them through standard uh, government uh, uh, practices. Um, they just want the good people won't come and work. And you actually create new institutions that are empowered technologically, right? That actually can adapt to the world that we're presently in. Um, and so that means that you're constantly sort of building on top of your existing foundation because those, those, those original institutions are valuable because they, they're stable and they're bedrock, uh, but they're also problematic in that they can't cover the world that we have today. And so in the same way that I'm not an originalist in my constitutional theory in the Supreme Court, um, I'm also not an originalist in terms of our political institutions. Well, so you do uh, several profiles on other countries. So you, you talk about China and India and Russia and Venezuela and Saudi Arabia and maybe half a dozen others. Are there any you want to specifically talk about here as far as the lessons we can learn from them? I, I want to ask you a few questions about China, but any other countries that you think are especially relevant in the flow of this conversation? I think there's one that's really interesting, and it's because it's in between and it's India. Because India is a country that, you know, 1.4 billion people, just like China, um, and for a long time, we believed that they would be the successful country long term, even though China could grow faster earlier, because India was democratic, because India was uh, more resilient, their political institutions would ultimately stand up to more hiccups. And, and what we're finding is that the Indians today spend one-tenth of what the Chinese spend on infrastructure. They're so far behind. They're getting farther behind every day. And the Indian government sees the way the Chinese are actually investing as a government in universal data and AI um, and, and building smart cities uh, and doing taking the global lead in facial recognition. And the, the Indians are developing their own universal ID system with biometrics and the rest. They're trying to use to cut through corruption. And when they originally came up with it called the Aadhaar system, um, it was going to be um, uh, um, optional. And now it's mandatory. And a lot of people in the Indian government and Indian corporations increasingly look at China and say, we think that's a better model for us than the United States. And I don't necessarily believe that for lots of reasons. Uh, one is because India is too messy a society to actually implement that well. And two is because I think the, the potential downside and resilience for China, if there's a major crisis, is much greater than the United States. But I think it's important for us in America to know that there are a lot of people around the world who used to believe that the aspirational model was the United States, and they don't really believe that anymore. And, and again, it ain't because of Trump. I mean, Trump doesn't help. But it's much deeper than that. Yeah. The comparison between India and China is also interesting because they have very different demographics, as you point out. China's an aging society now because of their one-child policy, but India has got this massive youth bulge. I think it was something like you know, half the population's under 25, or so probably not far off. And then In India. Yeah, yeah. And then they have this just a very different level of diversity in the population and result in sectarianism. And it's a different place to weather these changes when, you, when you're talking about the implications of automating 
many jobs away, that wave breaks differently on those two shores. Well, and in fact, if we're going to, since we're talking, before we get to China, I should make one other point, which is that it's interesting that the one advanced industrial democracy where none of these problems are happening is Japan, right? And in Japan, if you go to Japan today, and I spent a lot of time there, uh, you will find that the popular trust in leaders, um, business community, media, and their political party system is pretty much exactly what it was 40 years ago. And, and how come they are the exceptions with the US, Canada, Australia, Britain, all of Europe? How come they're the ones that aren't experiencing this wave of populism and us versus them? It's really interesting. First is because their population is actually shrinking. So per capita, they're doing a lot better. So they're not, they're not as worried about losing jobs. They're, they're losing people, right? Uh, second is because um, they actually don't have any immigration. So Japan is Japanese. So you don't have an us versus them inside Japan, right? And the third is that their military isn't actually allowed to fight outside of Japan. So you don't have these poor enlisted men and women that are all saying, I, was, I gave the ultimate for my country and look what, I, look what happened to me. And so the one country that doesn't have a problem with globalism is the one that never actually embraced globalism to begin with. And I think that's really interesting. It is interesting. Unfortunately, that is also an alt-right or even further right, you know, racist right talking point. I don't know if you've encountered this, but it's the kind of thing that, you know, neo-Nazis will say in defense of their racism. They'll say, look, look at Japan. Are, are the Japanese racist? They keep everyone out and, you know, they're thriving. Is there, nobody's wasting a lot of time demonizing the Japanese for not letting non-Japanese move into their country. And, and, you know, I'm not surprised. Yeah. I had not encountered that, yeah. but I'm not surprised. And the, the interesting thing, of course, is that Japan's been punished for that for decades because when you have that little diversity, you don't get a lot of entrepreneurship and you don't get a lot of growth. And so much of the dynamism of the American economy historically has come from immigration, right? I mean, everyone knows Steve Jobs comes from Syria. Um, you know, my, my grandmother came over here from Aleppo. I mean, you know, we all have these wonderful stories uh, but if the world is getting much more dangerous, if the world is getting much more volatile, we're not going to focus as much on growth. We're going to focus more on stability and resilience. When you focus on growth, you want diversity and you want as much immigration as possible. You want open borders. If you stop focusing on growth and you start focusing on stability, then you start talking about walls. You start separating people off. And, you know, one of the things that depressed me most about writing this book was my Israel-Palestine story, because, you know, 20 years ago, everybody thought that if the Israelis did not come to a solution with the Palestinians, that it was the end of Israel. And Tom Friedman has written those pieces probably every two months for 10 years of his life. It's just not true. I mean, Israel today is one of the most sustainable democracies in the world, um, very anti-corruption, very strong independent judiciary, rule of law, great educational system. Even the Arabs living in Israel feel pretty good about it as long as you're not Palestinian in the occupied territories. And they've completely walled these people off. And it's actually quite sustainable. It's just not the kind of country that a cosmopolitan would want to live in. Yeah. I mean, the, the lesson there certainly is that walls work if you're trying to mitigate, I mean, in this case, you know, suicidal terrorism just wandering across your border. And Trump says that. He said, he said many times, I've seen him on the campaign trail, you want to talk about walls? Ask Israel. Walls work. He says it. And, and, you know, like so many things Trump says, 
you know, even though he doesn't necessarily get facts right, there's a grain of truth in a lot of what he talks about. And this is definitely one of those places. Mm. Okay, well, so briefly, let's talk about uh, the looming trade war with China and what you think about that, and then just segue into what all Trumpian things look like in your brain at the moment. What's going on with us in China and how great an idea is it? How great an idea what we're doing with China or China itself? No, our trade war with China. Oh, well, we don't yet have a trade war with China. Um, We've got a trade skirmish with China. We've put tariffs on some $34 billion of goods. They've done exactly the same. We're talking a big game, 500 billion, 200 billion, depending on what day you hear Trump talk. Um, I I do believe that the Chinese have um, some willingness to negotiate with us, uh, both in terms of buying more American goods, as well as providing some openness market access to non-strategic sectors where right now we feel like we're not getting enough. But, uh, you know, there there is a real problem um, between the United States and China. We thought for a long time China was going to become more like us and politically reform and become more open as they move towards being a consumer-driven economy, that was wrong. Um, they, they've got Xi Jinping now as president for life. They, they've become a stronger, more consolidated state capitalist economy. And within 10 years, they'll be the largest economy in the world. They're building their own economic architecture. Uh, they don't want to run the IMF. They want to run One Belt, One Road and the Asian in- Infrastructure Investment Bank and the China Development Bank. And that is giving a lot of money to a whole bunch of countries and aligning them with China. So it's one thing for the Chinese to steal our intellectual property, but it's another for them to steal our strategy. And that's what they're really doing. Um, The Marshall Plan, which is what really drove globalization, right? I mean, the Americans rebuilding Europe in our image and then creating a bunch of institutions that allowed our values and norms and political preferences and economic preferences to govern the developed world and over time even more, that really gave us a period of um, comparative uh, economic and political harmony and extraordinary growth. The Chinese now are building a very different kind of global order. It is much more commercially driven and transactional. It is not about values, but is aligned to Beijing, all roads, lead to Beijing. And that will cause uh, uh, a reduction in uh, economic growth potential for the Americans. It will eventually be seen as more zero sum between the US and China. And that's particularly going to be true in technology where unlike in trade, we aren't very interdependent. Um, So I think that there is a theory out there that if you believe the US and China are heading for conflict, much better to push them hard now when we are much bigger and stronger than later. That's Steve Bannon's perspective. And I absolutely see the logic with that. But if you're going to do that, do it with your allies. In other words, support the Trans-Pacific Partnership, support NATO, support the EU, like be free trade and common values with all the countries that kind of agree with you. So in other words, Trump is both pushing the Chinese hard now, but he's also antagonizing all the allies. So it's going to be much, he's much less capable of actually doing it. And that's why I think that ultimately there won't be much of a trade war because Trump's not in a position to get very much. And so he probably ultimately backs down and declares victory. So is that the biggest mistake he's making with respect to foreign policy, alienating our allies? It's up there. 
I mean, the fact that I mean, people say that Trump is a divider, but I mean, internationally, he's clearly a unifier, right? Because I mean, when Trump pulled out of the Paris climate deal, literally every other country in the world disagreed with that. Literally everyone. So I mean, I, you, it's, you're hard pressed to find a leader these days do anything that everyone else can agree is a bad idea, right? And yet I can find several. I mean, him leaving the Trans-Pacific Partnership, almost everyone agreed that was a bad idea. Him unilaterally pulling out of the Iran deal, almost everyone disagreed with that. Only uh, the Saudis, the Emiratis, maybe Israel. Uh, his moving the Israeli embassy to Jerusalem, um, his demands of, uh, on, on trade uh, with the Europeans, with the Mexicans, with the Canadians, talking about breaking NAFTA. I mean, these are leaving uh, UNESCO. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that Trump has done that's really undermined uh, America's influence globally. I mean, in an environment where America's influence was already being undermined because of divisions inside Europe, because of the rise of China, because of Russia's willingness to undermine us. And Trump just jumped on that, right? And, and really helped push a ball that was already rolling downhill, gave it a lot more momentum. So yeah, that's probably the biggest mistake he's made. The fact that he just doesn't get that U.S.-led multilateralism is a very important source of strength for the American economy, for American national security, and most critically over the long term for the American dollar. Because, I mean, if we lose the American dollar as the global reserve currency in part more quickly because of things Trump has done, that's probably like a third of our national wealth. If you talk to the serious economists that look at that, I don't know about you, but I don't want a depression in the United States on the back of that kind of stupidity. Is there a method to his madness in your view, or do you, do you view most of what he's doing as a symptom of his, his own incompetence, his ignorance, his narcissism, his personal grifting, and his narrow business concerns? Or is there a little Steve Bannon in his brain operating all the while based on some kind of high-level conscious strategy? There absolutely is a strategy. The problem is that his um, ability to implement it, both in terms of uh, constraints of the U.S. political system and also his own personal temperament, are, are really limited. Um, so, I mean, I do believe that Trump gets that the United States is the most powerful military in the world, the most powerful economy in the world. And that linkage, like if we go in with other leaders and we talk about NATO, but we don't just talk about defense spending, we also talk about trade spending because America has the most leverage. Yeah, you should link those things. I and mean, there's no reason why America wouldn't have, you know, sort of broader conversation with its allies. The Chinese do that. When the Chinese talk to someone about Taiwan, they don't just say vote for us on Taiwan or we won't give you this vote at the UN. They'll say vote for us on Taiwan or we'll cut off our tourism vote for us on Taiwan, or we won't invest in this infrastructure project. I mean, th that's an absolutely legitimate strategy. But, but Trump is incapable of controlling his emotions. He, um, as a consequence, he's very focused on short term, on brand. He needs to be satisfied. He has an incredibly short term attention span. Um, I think all of those things get him in a lot of trouble. So his, even though it's not just grains of truth, as I mentioned, even though there is some basic understanding of, quote unquote, how deals work and what leverage looks like, he just doesn't have the discipline to actually implement on a strategy 
particularly involving something as complex as being the president of the United States. Do you have a sense of who you'd like to see run against him in 2020? I want to see someone, well, you kind of touched on this earlier, Sam, when you said that what the Dems can't do um, is um, just, uh, you know, go all in uh, on Trump needs to be impeached or all, you know, immigration, any anti-immigration sentiment is evil. I mean, all of that stuff. I would say I would add to that, perhaps most importantly, far left identity politics can't be the platform. Yeah, completely. I, com- I agree with all of that. But, I, but what I most want to see is someone that can lead by example. Um, I, I mean, I, I think it's so important because Trump, the one thing that Trump is the worst at is leading by example. No one wants their kids to grow up to be like Trump. I want a man or a woman to run against him who we are inspired by. So I grew up Catholic and I, I have a challenging relationship with the Catholic Church. I mean, they're anti-woman, anti-gay, anti-science. I mean, you know, the pedophilia is extraordinary. And yet I personally find Pope Francis one of the most inspirational figures on the world stage today. And I, and I, say, and I say that because I feel like he leads by example. I feel like when he says things that he is being authentic in what he says and the way he lives and as a consequence, he's someone I want to believe in. Um, and and I, I think that, you know, the fact that he can do that within a church, an institution, and so obviously broken implies to me that even though party politics are broken in the United States, that we hunger for authenticity. We hunger for someone that we believe in. And I, I think that, that the average human being understands authenticity. The people that voted for Trump voted for him not because they thought he was authentic. The people that voted for Trump voted for him because they were angry and they wanted to break stuff. Again, protest vote. But I I do think that they're capable of recognizing authenticity um, in the media, um, in their spouses, in their families, and maybe even in the president of the United States. I don't think it's too much to ask for him. And I talk to a lot of senators. I know a lot of them. I know a lot of representatives. And, and, you know, they're not bad people. Their system is problematic. And I think that there are several out there that if they ran um, and ran a good campaign, um, we could get some of that. And I think that would be a good thing. Well, listen, Ian, I know your time is short today. Is there anything else that we haven't touched that you want to touch in closing? I, I, yeah, I would just say that um, I also think that I believe in people like you. Um, you know, I mean, I think about you, you know, you were kind of a, a wonky, really smart, kind of narrow guy when I first encountered you when the first big book came out. And I mean, now you've got millions of followers all over the world and you're spending some time bringing your voice um, to try to, I think, make the world a better place. And, and I, I, if I'm optimistic in the world over the course of the next 20 years, it's because there are a lot of folks like you that are popping up that are making a real difference that are, I, I, that, you know, smart people want to listen to. You'd have nowhere near the success that you have if it wasn't for the fact that human beings are pretty decent. Um, and so I think that's a cool thing. Mm, well, that's nice to hear. And it's uh, largely attributable to the fact that people like you will talk to me. So it's really been great to have your voice and expertise on the podcast. Finally, in closing, Ian, is there any place online that you want me to point people? I will point them to your all too voluble Twitter feed. But um, is there any point of contact that you want me to post? 
Yeah, aside from that, I mean, I have a lot more people that follow on LinkedIn. Um, that's probably where people engage most in conversations. And uh, also, um, the uh, media company we started, G0Media.com, um, has uh, everything that we do for the general public, like our new TV show that's on public television and uh, our own little podcast and a bunch of short videos, just a lot of content trying to help people uh, make their way through the world. Cool. Well, keep it up, Ian. It's really, it's great to talk to you. Thanks, man.